Hey friends, welcome back to The Well Podcast. I'm Amber and I'm your host. Whether it's your first time to join us or you haven't missed an episode yet, we are so glad to have you back and so thankful you are a part of our community here at The Well. Don't forget, we have the Freedom Tour with Jenny Allen and Christy Knuckles coming to Columbia on October 13th. Do not miss this event. Jenny Allen will absolutely leave you feeling refreshed and motivated to grow in the Lord. If you don't have tickets yet, go to our website and grab some while you can. So I have three school-aged boys. Many of you lived this season well ahead of me and you know, and some of you are behind me and think that your kids won't be the ones to turn over the grocery cart on its side at Fresh Market. You can definitely put me in the category of people who are wrong about that little assumption. Life is fast and crazy, but mostly this season of life is marked by just how busy it is. We are constantly on the go. I go days sometimes with barely a conversation with my husband. God bless a Google shared calendar. I have no idea how the generations that have gone before me managed without it. I currently manage the day-to-day with both a Google shared calendar and a hardback paper calendar to help me with daily tasks. Then, of course, we have a posted paper calendar at home, so my kids have an idea of what's going on. I wouldn't trade this season for anything, and I'm not at all complaining. It's fast-paced, but it's wonderful. Though, it does have a fair amount to do with why I ate an order of french fries from the canteen last night and called it dinner. So, this is how I attack the whole being a good mom thing and getting people to all the places they need to be. I try to stay organized and I'm constantly prioritizing and choosing where and how we should spend our time. I'm good at being organized and I actually do enjoy it. And it helps to make me be a good mom and put me in the driver's seat for our daily life. But then it also has a way of making me want to manage things that I shouldn't. I hit a crisis or something difficult comes up with parenting, relationships, family, or illness. And I am so good at what I know that my instinct is to attack it head on, go after the problem and manage it myself, or at least with the help of my circle. I call a friend, talk it out, or call my mom or talk to my husband. Surely we can figure out how to deal with this. How long is it before I go to Jesus? How many things will I put in front of him or in his place? This month, we are hearing from my friend, Erin. Many of you will be able to relate to her and her story. If you can't yet at this point in your life, you will. So very many of us walk this tricky path of taking things out of Jesus's hands. And at some point that falls apart on us. Let's hear from Erin and how she walked through that. So I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. um, And we had a, it was a great childhood. Um, I have a younger brother named Walker and um, my parents were married and loved each other and um, they were really plugged in in church and um, all of their friends were people that they met in newlywed Sunday school I referred to to their best friends as aunt and uncle and like everybody was really close they were tight-knit families um, in community with other tight-knit families and um, just a close family environment so y'all had a great relationship yep yeah um, and y'all went to church um, as a child. How was your faith like? Um, so when I was 
I think I was six, and the way I can tell is like looking back at pictures, um, I know that I had a perm, like a, a bob haircut and a perm with bangs. I was born in 1982, so like, was that 88? I mean, it, it was bad, but um, something my mom thought I needed, but I... <laughs> At Did the, she perm your bangs? She didn't do it herself. I mean, she took me to a okay, salon. Well, but yes, good. the bangs were permed. My mom permed myself, so you, at least she yeah. took you to the salon. My cousin's here. She probably remembers. Yeah. It was awful. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I know that our church, um, when you made your profession of faith, they had a bulletin board, and they would um, take your Polaroid, and after you were baptized, and they'd put your Polaroid picture on the bulletin board as one of the new members. And my mom's best friend's daughter, who was my best friend, she did it. She was a couple months older than I was, and she did it before I did. And I remember seeing her picture on the bulletin board and telling my parents that I wanted to do that too. And so um, the, the motive was to, um, there was some FOMO there, I guess. I wanted my picture on the bulletin board. But um, I know that they took me to meet with the pastor, and he walked through the plan of salvation. I knew that Um, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believed it. I wanted him in my heart and I wanted my sins to be washed away so that I could spend eternity with him. Um, And I have this little Bible that the pastor wrote. um, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And this is my my little childhood Bible. And so I got baptized with my perm, and um, <laughs> that's, it had to get wet. That's what I remember. Yeah, your perm had to get wet. Yeah. Um, so um, you you just look like you were a good girl. Were you a good girl? I was a good girl. Um, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to like cause a problem at school or cause a problem with my parents. I mean, the worst was that I was mean to my younger brother. Um, but I, yeah, I wanted to please my parents. I knew what the rules were, and as a six, seven-year-old, it's not like I had a um, rebellious past to turn away from um, <laughs> when I was, my, my, my sins were um, not bold sins at the time when they were washed away in baptism. Six, seven but yes, I, w- I was a good girl. Did, so you came to faith as a young child, mm-hmm. um, and as you grew up, did you have discipleship, accountability? What did that look like? Yeah, so because we were in such tight-knit relationships with other families um, and we were at church all the time, there was Sunday school. And um, when I was in third grade, we moved to North Louisiana and we joined another great church. Um, I was in Bible drill and I mean, I could like look up something really fast and (laughs) memorize all kinds (laughs) of scripture. Um, But there, it was the same thing with families like loving each other's children and pointing them to Jesus and holding them accountable. And like, you knew that those other families had your back and were going to help you grow up to know the Lord better. Um, And so that was, I'm, I'm so grateful for that foundation of faith that we had in church and at home. So you've gone through elementary school, middle school, high school. How was high school? Um, tougher. So when I was in the eighth grade, we moved to Indiana. Um, and that was just awful. Um, it's, it's an awful time of life. And um, we're laughing because the way I described it to them was that 
when I got to this new school in Indiana, I mean, besides like saying y'all and having an accent and saying yes ma'am to the teacher and all the things that other eighth graders would make fun of you for, I was five foot eight and um, didn't look probably much different than I do now. I mean, I, no, you did. People thought <laughs> I saw a picture. <laughs> people thought I was a student teacher. Like I looked so old that um, it, it was just awkward. So the picture, she's got like a bob haircut and bangs, and she's wearing a jumper and a turtleneck. It's true. I was like, it's true. You, yeah. Okay. So it was just. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't fit in immediately, and so we we're out of the Bible Belt, and we're looking as a family for a church, and we've left this great environment, and um, we ended up joining a church that was 30 minutes away from where we lived and where I went to school. And so my church life and school life did not overlap at all. Um, I would look for like the Christian kids at school, but it wasn't obvious who they were, and, um, and things were just different. Not bad, but different. I mean, I had nice friends, but there wasn't that accountability that just was with me everywhere that I went. And that's a hard time of life not to have that. Yes. Did you have friends, boyfriends, like a normal teenager? Yeah, I had friends. Um, I, I like to say that I was a good girl until I just wasn't. Like one day I just wasn't. And I didn't, I didn't set out to become rebellious. I mean, I, and I still wanted to please my parents. I thought I wanted to please the Lord, but there was just not accountability. And so um, the, there were some like minor boyfriend players, but then there was one that was just not, not a good guy. Why do you think you chose the bad boy? Um, I think that more than choosing to date a bad boy. I was just choosing to date. Um, I mean, at 16 years old, I just didn't know. I mean, if, if people are dating and that's who asked and that's Why kind of yeah. where I was. Did you, did that cause any tension with your parents? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, there was just, it was everything that you would not want for your teenage daughter. Um, just the relationship was tense. I was lying to my parents and sneaking around and, and just, just a rough couple of years. Um, I did not, yeah, I, went, I, I wanted to still be what they wanted me to be, but it just felt like I'd gone too far. Too far. Yeah. Well, I know you don't end up with a bad boy, so... Um, <laughs> um, you, you go to college. I went to college, okay. and it was um, somehow in me, I've, I really just wanted to get away. And so I went back to Louisiana, and that just made it like a, a clean break. Like it was done, and I, it was the only way I knew to get out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to college, and, and I went to Louisiana Tech, and it was um, the same town that we had lived in before, so it felt like going home, and I was around people that would hold me accountable, and um, it was good. So college was good. Good. What yeah. was your faith like in college? It was, it was great. I mean, I was um, probably more lukewarm in college. I joined a sorority and was really plugged in, 
And I um, disciple some sorority girls that are here tonight, and we've talked about this before, but it's, it's a hard, hard thing to like live in the, the college ministry world and in the sorority life world and to see kind of how you fit into to both. Um, but sometimes I felt like too much when I was mm-hmm. in something that was at church or in, in college ministry and then felt like the goody-goody when I was at sorority stuff. Yeah. But um, it was, college was great. It was a, a safe environment and um, I had, yeah, yeah. I had a, good friends and good accountability. Okay, so what happens after college? So I didn't know what I was going to do, um, and my relationship with my parents was, much, I mean, all, all they ever wanted was for me to not be with the bad boy anymore. Um, and so I went to college, and we were close, and I missed them, and while I was there, they moved here to Columbia. And so I thought, well, I'll just go to Columbia, because they're there, and I'll go to grad school. And um, I, I came here and um, got my master's in hospitality management and um, lived by myself and I had one friend. <laughs> and, um, grad school's weird because it's short term and the, the program's short, but um, yeah, there was, my parents were members here at Shandon and when I would attend church, I would come with them, but I didn't want to get plugged in in singles and I just didn't know where I fit in. and. Um, so. so you're in grad school, you have one friend, <laughs> um, you shouldn't have that. Now you have lots of friends. I do. Um, did you date anybody at this point in time? Yeah, so um, there was a, another bad boy. Um, and <laughs> he, it was, he was, he was kind, um, but <laughs> did, not, did not know the Lord at all. Um, was uh, just vocally agnostic and um, and I, I just knew like I, I had this constant thought in my head of like what are you doing where, where first of all like where are the good ones and why aren't they pursuing me like what the standard that I know that I want in a man and what I look for why don't they pursue me and then the ones that do and have are these unconventional bad guys. What do you mean by unconventional? Um, I didn't look like a student teacher anymore, but I was, I did look like a good girl. Um, this, he was a, a DJ, he had, y'all, like sleeve tattoos, y'all are like, what? Um, spacers in his ears. I mean, if you saw the two of us next to each other, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things that does not like reflect what's in the heart. But if you saw the two of us standing next to each other, it it just wasn't. It didn't make a sense. Fit. It yeah. didn't make sense. <clears throat> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> okay, well, we know that the man you married does not have spacers no, or sleeve tattoos. No. So, <laughs> and you know, there was there was conviction the whole time. Um, it's just, I, I knew, I was thinking this morning that like every, every phase, I knew it was a phase and I would tell myself that like this is, this is just a phase until something that I really, really want happens. Um, 
which is, why would I not have just been patient and just waited? Mm -hmm. Well, so enters. Yes, enters Todd Carroll. Yeah. So I got a job um, right after grad school working at a law firm, and um, I'm a crier, so if I start crying talking about Todd, then y'all can just watch me. Um, <laughs> but I, I got this job at a law firm, and um, I was sitting at my desk one day, which was kind of like out in the open, and this guy gets off the elevator. It was actually September 1st, 2005, and we remember that because it was a Thursday, and it was the day of Steve Spurrier's first home game at Carolina. And if you know Todd, you know that he would not forget that. It's not that he met me. It's a, um, it was a, a significant Gamecock football game. So he um, gets off the elevator, and he walks to my desk, and he said, um, I'm here to pick up football tickets, and so-and-so has them for me. And so I said, okay. So I called that person and said, Todd Carroll's here to get football tickets. And he stood at my desk and asked me all these questions, like, where are you from? I've never seen you here before. And it turns out he was going to be coming to work there in the next few weeks. Um, but I just had this little feeling, I bet, I bet, I'm going to date that guy. Um, <laughs> he, he was just really interested, really attentive, just a good listener. He had some question to ask about whatever I said. He just wanted to know all about me. Mm -hmm. I bet he probably knew that he was going to date you too. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we didn't start dating immediately, um, like months went by, and I ran into him in the frozen food section at, at Publix, and um, we stood there and talked for 20 minutes, and the next day at work, I said something to him, and he goes back to his desk, and this email back and forth starts, and this like slow, steady pursuit went on for like three months before he ever asked me to lunch. Um, and then, at, in our email exchanges, it came up that we were both irregularly attending Shandon. Like he, he was kind of back in Columbia after law school and he would pop in from time to time and didn't want to get plugged in in singles and you know, just awkward. So we decided to meet in the lobby and meet up and come to church together. And so on, hang on, on December the 4th, 2005, this is the, the thing from that day. We, we met outside the church and we came in together and we sat down and we like whisper sang so that we didn't have to hear each other <laughs> singing. Um, but you can sing. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's awkward. You don't want somebody you just, you kind of like him. You don't want him to hear you sing. So our first um, non-date was at Shandon and we went on a date two days later. So what was different about Todd? Todd had this slow, steady pursuit of me. He was not aggressive and bold. Um, and it was just, it was pure. Um, he, he had um, committed to saving himself from marriage and told me that right off the bat. Um, but also just didn't ask me any questions. It was this like earthly picture of 
grace from a man where I just, I had always wondered, like, will somebody like that ever want to be with me after these other relationships? And it was just, it's like it was all wiped clean. Um, and he just showed me that, that I, was, I was worth loving. And it was this beautiful picture of grace. That's new, so I know that that, maybe that could be scary, a little bit scary. Yeah, Um, a few months into it, we, um, I I just knew that it was headed for marriage, and I freaked out a little bit. In the meantime, my parents, who I'm incredibly close to, have now moved to Dallas. So there's, you know, just move after move after move. So they've moved away, and like my, my folks have moved, this guy's going to want to get married and I love him, but I just, I don't, I don't know like where I want to be and I don't, I don't know what in the world I'm doing. Um, and so we broke up and I, I did not move to Dallas. I'm here. And I woke up a couple of months later in the middle of the night and had a dream that Todd and I were getting married and I sat straight up in bed and had a, and I spent the next couple of months groveling <laughs> and apologizing and trying to get sweet Todd to forgive me and love me. And um, he did. And, I mean, it was, it was like the reverse. I mean, he was mm-hmm. kind and gracious, um, but I had, to, I had to wait. You had to work a little bit. Yes, <laughs> I did. So obviously you get married. We got married, and um, we, we, yeah, planning the wedding with my mom was so much fun, um, and we got married, and we, we joined Shandon, um, and so one of, the, one of the other things that churches used to do, they used to bring you down to the front and introduce you to the church, and um, we, we joined, and they brought us down front, and um, Ken and Lori Harris came down to the front to say, y'all look like newlyweds. We lead the newlywed Sunday school class. We want you to come. And so Lori called me three times that week and really pursued me. And so we went and we joined that class and we met lots of other newlywed couples um, that we're still close to. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the Lord was just just continuing to pursue me and then put, put me back in community with other believers that would hold me accountable and us accountable in our marriage as we start this life together. Yeah. So you get married, you're plugged in, yeah. you start having some babies. We had some babies. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing that, that really changed for me after this newlywed class we were in a class with, um, that was led by Brian Morris. And all this time, my faith is like the knowledge of God and um, what, I, what I know about him and that it's all revolving around like my salvation and that, you know, I wanna be right with God. But we get into this class with Brian Morris and he is on fire and he starts telling us every week um, I want you to 
I want you to share a testimony. I want everybody to get up and tell me about how you shared your faith with somebody this week. And he would get up and he'd tell story after story after story of just strangers that he'd shared the gospel with that week. And he'd look at us and it'd be crickets. I mean, nobody would have any kind of story to tell. And so finally, um, it, it caught on and other people would have stories to tell, but it completely changed my outlook of, of my faith, that this is not just for me. I'm here to share it. I'm here to tell other people about how Jesus loves them, what he's done for them, and that he's their hope. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're in a really great place. You're married, and you're growing in your faith, and you're having babies. You have three beautiful boys, and you mentioned that you had so much fun planning your wedding with your mama. Can you tell me about your mama? Yeah. So when our oldest child was about um, 11 months old, I got a text from my mom. My mom and I would talk, you know, like three times, four times a day. It's that kind of like, hey, mom, what are you doing? Nothing. Yeah, me neither. Like, just, there's nothing to do right now, so I'm going to call my mom, and, or I'm in traffic, or the baby's sick, or um, whatever. It's just that, that first call is, is your mom. And so um, one day she sends me a text that says, I have melanoma. And I'm like, what in the, <laughs> you, said, you can't send that to me in a text. And so I called her and she said that she was in the car with somebody and she couldn't talk, but um, she had melanoma on the back of her leg. And it, if uh, melanoma is not just skin cancer, um, they did remove it but then it was in one of, uh, at least one of the lymph nodes, and so it was stage three at the time of diagnosis. And um, they, she just decided, I'm not gonna have any treatment. We're, there's no guarantee that treatment is, it's not gonna cure it, I want my quality of life to be high, we're just gonna sort of see what happens, and I'm gonna change my diet and do all these things, and. Um, but you said she like stopped eating meat, but ate like ice cream. Right. <laughs> yes. And she said, I'm not going to eat any more meat, but she would eat ice cream for dinner. Um, <laughs> so um, it was, we were scared. Um, she never seemed scared, but we just, you know, we went three years for her. Well, there were three years where she had totally clear scans. And so it was like, she had this thing but it wasn't really there because it wasn't affecting her quality of life at all. And, and it was gone for a season. It was gone, yeah. yeah. So three years goes by. And it metastasized. Okay. Um, it showed up in the other leg and she had that one removed. And um, I think just it just continued to spread. Um, and yeah, it was, like awful <laughs> knowing she had this this thing and not knowing what was going to happen but still no treatment so so how are you journeying through this sickness with your mom um i i would carry she wouldn't talk about it a lot like what what she was afraid of and so i would just sit around 
worrying about what she was afraid of. Um, like, how can I get her to open up about this? How can I get her to tell me what is scaring her? Um, we went to, so my, my youngest child was born in 2015, and so we went on a family vacation. And at this point, she's discovered that it's in her brain. And um, that it was like the five-year mark that, from diagnosis. And so she started to show symptoms of cancer and um, cognitive abilities weren't super sharp. And she would get nauseated a lot. And so we went on this trip to, Col to Colorado to see my brother. And all the kids went and it was so much fun and just a, a great, great trip. And um, when it was time to leave, we were, we were driving to the airport and we had to have a really quick rushed goodbye and she was sick a lot on that trip. And so I think it hit us all like, uh, you know, when's the next time we're gonna see each other and what's she gonna be like the next time we see each other? Um, so we have this quick goodbye and goodbyes with my mom were always terrible because we had been living apart for so long. And so and every time I'd hug her goodbye, I would just cry and, you know, she'd cry and we'd try to figure out immediately when the next time was that we would see each other. And um, this time we hugged and I held her tight and cried and she pulled back and held my shoulders and said, I am not gonna die. And I just, I, I won't forget that because we just, we didn't want her to. Um, but she um, just continued to go downhill. So what were you asking the Lord during this time for your mom? Um, I couldn't bring myself to ask the Lord for healing for her. Um, this is where I'm like super convicted. I don't know, it's that, I don't know that it's, that I didn't believe that he could. I mean, I knew that he could, there's, sure. there's miracles. Yeah. Um, maybe I didn't believe that he would. Um, it was complete self-protection. If I just prayed for his will or for him to be glorified in her sickness or for peace to cope with whatever happens when she does die, then I can be prepared to be strong when that happens. And I just, I would talk to Todd and say like, what are you praying for? And he'd say that she'd be healed. And I'd I just, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I was afraid to. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to be disappointed by the Lord or be shocked or be just completely wiped out because I didn't think it could happen. I think it's so beautiful, though, that even though that was something you couldn't pray for, your people were praying things for you that you couldn't pray. <laughs> and that's what the body does. How were your people who love Jesus there for you when your mom was dying? Hmm. Um, they're here. Um, but they, they stepped in to love my kids and take care of my kids and take them places. And they, 
they prayed all the things. They pushed me to talk about it when I didn't want to admit that I was scared and I'd just walk around and say, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, And I'd go home and fall apart. Um, When she was, everything is benchmarked by football. Um, It was like, (laughs) it was right after the Carolina Clemson game and my dad called and said, "Um, I think you need to come tomorrow. And so I flew home the next day and um, my dad was there, my brother was there and it was, it was the end. I mean, hospice was there and she, I mean, nobody wants to see anybody in that state, but especially their, their mother and somebody that gave life to them. Um, she, it was just, it was time for her to go. Um, but we just prayed over her, sang songs over her, all the hymns that she loved. Um, they were sweet, sweet days um, and terrible. Um, and so the night that she died, my dad and I went to, she was at home, and so we went to her bedside and we knew that it was about to happen. And again, we just prayed over her and we told her that it was okay and um, where everybody was and that all the kids were okay. And I had told Todd earlier that day, like this, please pray for her to, to go on home. It's, it's so bad. And um, I got back to my phone after after my mom passed away, and I had at least a dozen text messages that had come through at the same time, which, friend after friend after friend, um, just saying that they were praying right in that moment that she would go home to the Lord. And what an awful thing to pray, but in, in his mercy, God brought her home to him. And to get to be there when she took her last breaths were as precious to me as the moments that my kids were born. God's mercy. God's mercy. So your mom's gone. It's November, December. It's December. And we've got to do, you know, services, and it's Christmas, and, you know, a a mom's just got to keep on going, and you got to have Christmas, and you got to do all the things. But for me, it was, it was Christmas when my mom showed up. Like, that's what makes it, that's what makes it Christmas for me. Like, (laughs) I'm doing the things for my kids, but when my mom can get there and, like, love me, then it's going to feel like Christmas. But she wasn't there and uh, my dad was there but my dad and Todd were outside like building things for the kids and my kids were somewhere playing and our Christmas tradition was to always have gumbo on Christmas Eve and then go to church and come back home and eat it after church and so I was like I'm gonna make gumbo but my mom always made it and she 
had never taught me how to make it. And so it was that first moment of like, oh no, you know, like this, I want to do this. I want to do it this way, but I don't know how. And I, you know, so when you make gumbo, you have to stand there. You have to make a roux, make a roux first. And it's flour and oil and you get it really hot and you just stand there and you stir and you stir and you stir and you can't leave the stove. And nobody's in the house with me and I'm standing there all by myself just crying over this roux while I stir it. And I'm just mad that I'm having to make it by myself and nobody's there to talk to me and nobody's there to make it feel like Christmas. And my whole, I mean, my children and husband are there, but I just, I wanted what I wanted. You wanted your mom. I wanted my mom. And I'm crying and I did not burn the roux and it actually was delicious, but, <laughs> um, I got down on my knees in the middle of my kitchen and I realized that I had put my mother in this place that she never should have been. She never could have been my savior. I, I counted on her all the time and allowed myself to be weak with her and not with many other people. But I had not allowed myself to be weak with the Lord. I had not asked him for what I wanted and I had not, even in that moment, until I got to my knees, I just said, I, I surrender. Like I've been trying to do this my way, my whole life. I've been trying to do it on my own I've tried to let other people fill this place for me, try to let my mom fill this place for me that is only for you. And he came and he suffered through life. He lit, walked through this life and experienced so many of the things that we've experienced. He died a death I should have died he rose again and we get to have eternity with him. The grave is not the end mm -hmm. and there's so much hope there and hope that I had put in my mom to take care of me. Yeah. Well, and, and anybody who knows Aaron at all, like, I mean, I've only known, I've known Aaron for two and a half years, but it feels like 20. Um, but when you know Aaron, you see a strong, confident, capable, secure, God-fearing woman. And I know that there are many people who are in this room, many people who are outside of this room, when they have a question, you're the first phone call, and you're strong, and we see you that way. Um, but in this moment of weakness before the Lord, it's the most beautiful place I can imagine. Yeah. Um, how did this new journey of being weak before him different than you being strong all the time? Hmm. Like I, I finally got to experience that intimacy with him. And I, you know, I'd, I'd loved him, I'd believed in him 
but I'd not let myself go there with him before. And it was beautiful and joyful. And um, it's crazy because like the, the worst event of my life, the worst suffering of my life, maybe the only true suffering of my life brought me the most joy. Um, I want to read this real quick. Um, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, gone, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we pro- profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that's what I was finally able to do. Um, finally saw that he, he could be strong. I didn't need to be strong. Right. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. No. How is your strength your weakness? Uh, it because mm, <laughs> my my strength isn't it's not real um, I'm just a broken girl trying to hold it together and do it myself it everything just want to do it myself um, and that's not what he wants for me and so um, he wants me to want him because he's the only source of joy, the only source of strength. And any time I think I'm strong, it's just, it's just a show. Yeah. So if you're broken, what do you know about suffering? Um, I know that without suffering, I would not know Jesus personally, like really, really personally. Um, yeah, that's where the intimacy is. And I know, I even crave it now. Like, God, I don't know, I don't know what you're going to have to do, and it's probably going to hurt. But I want that with you because it's the only place that I know that I can get it because I want to be too strong all the time. Yeah. Has there been anything since your mom's death where you feel like, You've had moments of weakness where God used to show you what he has for you? Mm-hmm. Um, a few, but one, one big one, and Megan was around for this one. Um, I was asked to go to East Asia on a mission trip, and I did not want to go. And um, a, I don't know how, how long, how many times I was asked, but... I think it was about <laughs> like six to, six to eight months before I said yes, that I would go. And so I went on this trip. It was incredible. Um, the things that God did, the scope of his kingdom that he showed me, um, just the ways that we were able to love missionaries and see what they were doing every single day and to get to be a small part of that um, was awesome. But I came home all stirred up um almost like a depression and they say that 
that happens after mission trips, but it went on and on and on. And I thought, God, why did I go on this trip if this is it when I get home? Like, I've, I knew that God was stirring me up for something, and it was just this holy discontent. Like, I wanted, I wanted more of something. I wanted, I, I just I needed, to, needed to do something. And really, I thought it was going to be a Chinese baby. <laughs> and Todd was like, what? No babies. <laughs> I did not no go babies. to East Asia. I don't think that's the story. Um, but I was in a wrestling match with the Lord, and I, I had to tell Todd, like, this is, this is something, and I need for you to go there with me and help me pray about it, help me figure it out. So we committed to reading through the book of James together um, slowly, and we were both just going to be praying the same things for the Lord to just reveal to us whatever it was. Um, and I guess a couple of months later, um, I had been, I'd been volunteering with women's ministry and working with women's ministry, but um, I, I got a call about this job. And it, it was not a Chinese baby. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I was shocked, um, but immediately knew that that's what God had stirred me up for. Um, and so, yeah. It was a really a call into ministry. Yeah, yeah. Erin referred to her walk during her time of grief as codependency on others. Her mom had been her first phone call. Then, as she was losing her mom, it became her dad. What happens to us when we lose our main lifeline or our go-to person? For many of us, that person probably is a parent, a sibling, or our child. The promise of having to walk through this grief is inevitable. I never even want to think about it. And what happens when we lose the person we depend on more than we depend on Jesus? This is at the center of the problem. What are the consequences that we create for ourselves when we have Jesus in our lives, but not at the center? When we put people or relationships or work on a pedestal and use that as the means for managing our lives instead of Jesus. I recently heard someone say, it's possible to be near Jesus your entire life and not ever see Him. We see this in the Bible too. Good people, the best of the best. David does this. He is a man after God's own heart, king of Judah, beloved by his people. As a boy, he defeated Goliath with faith and with the help of God himself. And David got so good at his job that eventually he leaned into his own strength to manage his weaknesses. David got himself a woman problem, had an affair with another man's wife, and she became pregnant. And then he turned one mistake into two and then three until it snowballed. He had Bathsheba's husband killed, and the cover-up created a bigger wall between him and God. Where was the faithful man of God through this? What happened to David and that model of a person that he was? That man that would go to God first? Well, David, the man after God's own heart, he actually was still there. He just isn't God. He is human, and as humans, we sin and we put things in the place of God. And ironically, as we get better at life, we sometimes lose touch with depending on God. 
Erin talked about how losing her mom actually enriched her dependence and her yearning for God. She doesn't mean that she is glad her mom isn't with her. She means that she has gained joy in learning to live with a God-centered life, that going to God as her first phone call is life-giving and filling in a way that a human cannot fill. David wrote in the Psalms over and over about going to God, and not just any time, first thing in the morning, his first phone call. Psalm 5-3, In the morning, O Lord, hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my needs in front of you, and I wait. Psalm 25-5, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 59-16, But as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning, I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. Psalm 90:14. Satisfy us in the morning with your loyal love, then we will shout for joy and be happy all our days. Psalm 143:8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Thank you for joining us this month. We will see you again in November.